a story, uh, well, no, I heard it <clears throat> not that long ago, about a group of second graders. So you imagine this is um, seven and eight-year-olds. This group of second graders, they were having kind of an assembly there at the school, and they had all gotten together, and that what they were doing was saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you can imagine they all stood up, and they were all telling about all the wonderful things they wanted to do. And one little girl said, well, I want to be a nurse. And another little girl said, well, I want to be president. And another little girl said, I want to be a Marine. And the little boy said, I want to be a firefighter. And, you know, all these different ones doing that. Finally, this one little boy got up, and he very courageously said, well, when I grow up, I'm going to be a lion tamer. I'm going to go right in there to that cage with the tigers and the lions, and I'm going to crack my whip, and I'm going to make them get up onto the chairs and make them stand up and growl. And, of course, now my mommy's going to be holding my hand the whole time, but I'm going to go right in there. <clears throat> Moving by faith, oftentimes we kind of feel that same way. I'm very, very courageous as long as I've got somebody holding my hand. I'm very willing to go through change and see things differently as long as I've got somebody by the hand who can walk me through it because courageous talk or courageous faith even, it's easy to talk the talk, but sometimes it's a little scary to walk the walk. And uh, to take that step of faith, to leave behind the familiar, that is, to leave behind the secure, to leave behind that place of safety, that place of even being anonymous of saying, well, I don't, nobody's noticing me. But if you step out in faith, somebody's liable to notice you. And, and that can, if, if whether it's the first step of following Jesus in, a, in, in salvation, you know, where you, you are going to walk an aisle or you're going to say, yes, Lord, you're, I want to take you as my Savior, that can be a little scary for a lot of us that have been there and done that. Uh, for some of us, it was we couldn't help but go down there, or we couldn't help but cry out to Jesus. For others, it was a pretty courageous step of faith. And <clears throat> whether it's salvation or obedience, that step of faith, taking that, I won't say it's a leap because it's not. It's a step. It makes sense once we figure out that that's what we want to do. It can be a little bit intimidating. In fact, it goes all the way from intimidating, clear over on the scale, to terrifying. Because some of us, you know... I, <laughs> Maybe you've been there and done that, like you went to a new school and it was a little bit terrifying. Or you went to a new job and it was a little bit scary. Or maybe you made a new friend and just reaching out to that new friend was a little bit of a, of a how about this one? Asking that young lady to, to marry you. Sometimes that was a step of faith that just, you had a lump in your throat that went all the way up to the top of your head. That can be a, a pretty scary situation, a pretty, pretty intimidating moment. Moving by faith, that is moving according to faith, is not for the faint of heart. In fact, if you're one of those people that says, yeah, I'll move by faith, I might just try that, you're not going to move by faith. <laughs> if you're one of those people that says, I'll get around to it, <clears throat> no, actually you won't. What you're talking about is you're going to wait and see if somebody else wants to move by faith, and once they get in, the, in that groove, well, you'll go in with them. There's a whole lot of that in, in the Christian world, a whole lot of that in, in the secular world. Moving by faith is not always scary, but it is often not easy. Moving by faith is not always scary, but it is always worth it. And moving by faith will always please the Lord. And I want us to meet somebody this morning in the scripture here who moved by faith, a woman whose name is not given, but I want you to turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse number 21. We've, we ended up in Mark 5 uh, last week and stopped at this verse 
verse 20, and we're going to start now in 21. We're going to read a couple of uh, a few verses here, uh, and I want you to introduce. I want to introduce you to the to, to the one major character here would be the the woman, and then we're going to see the other major character toward the end of the service. We're going to meet this woman. Her name is not given. But let's read. I want to read aloud as you read along here in verse 21. We're going to read several verses together. Verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials, Jairus, came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him. That is, Jesus went with Jairus. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all but rather had grown worse, After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Let's stop right there, because I want us to think about this woman in some some kind of detail here. Because we meet this woman, her name is not given. In fact, she's defined by her condition. You know, I hate to say that she's the woman with the issue of blood, but you know we do that today. We have that lady who has all the cats, or we have that lady who has all the bratty kids, or we have that guy who has so many junk cars in his yard, we think he's got his own private junkyard. This woman was defined, and still is today, by the medical condition that she had, that she had the issue of blood. Now, you ladies are going to understand this far better than any of us guys, what that really involves, but it was a constant flow of blood. But this medical, this physical condition that she had to face was only a part of the plight that she faced. Look again in verse 25 and 26. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years had endured much at the hands of many physicians, had spent all that she had and had not been helped at all, but rather had grown worse. This was a condition, not only did it cost her a lot of money, but this was a condition that included a very real public stigma. Now what I mean by that was this constant flow If you read back in Leviticus, you're going to find out that this made her ceremonially unclean. That meant that she was not supposed to be out and about. Anything she sat on became unclean. Anything she touched became unclean. Anything she used became unclean. And she would have been treated like a pariah. She would have been one of these people you didn't want to see coming. She was that pariah to her family, to her friends. I look at Sonia sometimes because... I use these words, I throw them out, and I expect everybody to know what they mean. A pariah is one, a, a, a pariah means a dog that lives in the junkyard. Because the, there still actually is in India a type of dog called a pariah dog. And they live basically in the trash heaps, where all the human trash and all the waste goes from the community. That's where a pariah dog lives. You have one of those dogs come to your house, are you going to be happy to see them? There's a good chance you're going to throw rocks at it. That pariah dog comes to your back door, you're not going to go out and pet that thing. It's not a pet. You want to get rid of it. You're going to throw dust at it. You're going to throw sticks at it. You're going to try to run it off. It is a scavenging, wild dog, and that's what they really call it. It's a free-ranging. They like to call it free-ranging. Really, that just means wild, okay? It's a vicious, unwelcome dog. Well, that about sums up how this woman would have felt in her own community because she was not welcome. This condition wasn't getting any better. 
And she was, in fact, getting worse. She spent all she had. I mean, she'd been down to Dr. Hotfoot's, and he couldn't help her. And then she spent a lot of money with Dr. Skunkweiler, and he didn't help her either. And so finally, with her last bit of money, she goes down to Dr. Last Hopus, and he can't help her either. She's getting worse the whole time. None could cure her. But by the way, you ever notice when a doctor can't cure you, they still send you a bill? Amen belongs right there, brother, just so you know. And now she faced not only the plight of being sick, but she faced the plight of poverty. And she also faced, as you can imagine, the plight of loneliness because being unclean or being unwelcome, it makes it hard to make friends. It makes it hard to keep friends. And so she faced the plight of all those things, but also knowing eventually this is going to kill her. She knew that she had that plight of eventual death. She couldn't help herself. She couldn't find anybody in this world who could help her. So in, in many ways, this woman is a, is a wonderful picture, a very accurate picture of every sinner who's ever been born. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who's born into this world is sick with an incurable disease, only it's called sin. Sick with an incurable disease that is the sin nature, the sins we commit, that sin that separates us from God. We're all sick with that, separated from the Creator who loves us, separated from that one that we'd want to have a a relationship with if we had any sense. But we can't because of the uncleanness of sin, by the effects of sin. And just like that woman, we're all unable to heal ourselves. We can't go to any person, any man, any church, any group. Nobody can help us and cleanse us and heal us. So here we are as, as lost people unable to be cleaned, cleansed, healed by any act or any person, ourselves or anyone else, just like that woman. Because she finally realized her only hope was God and the lost person. In fact, Ephesians 2.12, yeah, Ephesians 2.12 says it like this, without hope, without God, and in the world. That's how the lost person is. That's how the lost man lives day in and day out, without God, without hope, and in the world. And that woman Her only hope now was God himself. And for that woman, what a day it must have been when God the Son, I mean the Son of God himself, God in human flesh, is coming to her town. God's my only hope, and here he comes. That would be an exciting day, wouldn't it? That'd be a great day in her life, and it was. Jesus, though, listen to me, Jesus just coming ashore at Capernaum was not going to help this woman. That was not enough. Any more than you just coming to a church house or you just learning church songs or learning Bible stories is going to help you. She had to do more than that. She had to engage her faith. And I shouldn't say her faith, just engage faith. Just as that uh, lost man must engage faith to receive the grace gift of God of forgiveness and righteousness. And so we're going to look at that a little bit deeper. Because this woman engaged her faith, and we're going to see it in the next couple of verses there, in what I can see easily divided into a three-stage program. Look there with me, if you will, in the next couple of verses, verses 27 and 28. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I touch his garments, I will get well. Now, there's three stages in there. You can see them as three verbs. And they're, they're not in the order she did them in, so I want to put them in a different order, not to change Scripture, but you understand, you think before you act, at least <laughs> some of us do. <clears throat> you know who you are. But she heard, and then she thought, and then she, she moved, or she acted, or she did something about it. She, she, she was responsible. She had a response. So this, uh, if, if we look there, it says right at verse number 27, after hearing about Jesus. Now, if you're just reading along Cadillac and through Scripture, you might think that all that meant was she heard that Jesus was getting out of the boat. But really, 
The hearing process for anyone is the longest process of coming by faith. Because you're going to hear about Jesus more than, than, than that one day when you make the decision. She lived in Capernaum. How many times do you think she'd already heard about this Jesus of Nazareth? Because Jesus had moved there, moved his ministry headquarters at least there. He was working out of Capernaum, kept coming back to that synagogue there. She had probably heard most of the stories that had been done. She had heard about his miracles there in that town. I mean, she had heard that he could drive out demons. She had heard that he heals lepers. She even heard about him being able to drive out fevers and illnesses. Don't you think that sparked some hope in her heart? And as she heard all this, she understood that Jesus was doing this for people who were undeserving. Jesus was doing this for people who were poor and rich. Jesus was doing this for people who were uh, old and young. Jesus was just reaching out. And she began to wonder, now, if he would do that for some, some man with a demon, if he would do that for somebody with a withered hand, maybe he would actually heal me, I mean, it's not that I'm a woman and he wouldn't take care of me because one of the first miracles we have recorded of Jesus is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. By the way, that was one of my questions this week in your reading. Whose mother-in-law was it or whose mother was it that was healed? I didn't read my questions to you, but Peter's mother-in-law, one of the first ones, he drove out the fever and she got up and began to wait on the, the disciples and upon Jesus. And so she wondered, would he do that for me? The more she heard, the more she began to believe. And see, the, the hearing stage... Of, of, of this whole thing of faith. It's, it's, it's the time of persuasion. See, I've got to be persuaded of something. You've got to be persuaded of something. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.11 said, Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. And the more you hear, the more you're persuaded. Persuasion is one of the duties of a child of God. I'm supposed to be persuading people. You say, oh, no, 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 you just wait until God shows up and He does it all. God does it all, but He does it through your persuasion, through your witness, through your testimony. Not, and I'm not talking about persuading somebody as in talking somebody into faith, because you can't do that. Because anything I can talk you into, somebody else can talk you out of. That's why you can look today on, on YouTube, on Facebook, online. You'll find a lot of people who say, well, I was a Christian, but I came out of that because I'm no longer a Christian. I think, no, you were never a Christian. Somebody talked you into being a church member or into being a, a Bible reader, and then you decided it wasn't true anymore, and you went off into the world where you were already. But you weren't a Christian then stopped being one. But this lady had a time of persuasion. And as she was persuaded, faith began to overshadow doubt. But then, it wasn't just a time, her, her hearing stage wasn't just a time of persuasion, it was a time of overcoming, because you can imagine this woman had some obstacles to overcome. I mean, look at her own body. Her own physical body would have been a, a source of unbelief, because she tried a lot. How, how many years had she tried? Twelve years she'd been working on this thing. Twelve years she'd been suffering with this. That's a long time. You get used to it then. It's chronic. You don't think about it getting better or, or going away. You just think about it getting a little bit better tomorrow. And so her own physical body would have been an obstacle she had to overcome. But as she kept hearing, her, 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 her belief and her courage began to overcome that objection of her own physical body and became, began to overcome the objection of her, her past experience. You know, one of the things that stops a lot of people is just a fear that is generated by past failure. We don't want to try again because, hey, I tried this once and it failed. A lot of times in churches, brother, we tried that 10 years ago, it didn't work. Don't let that stop you from doing what God tells you to do. Because the fact is, that church that you're in now is a different church than it was 10 years ago. 
Moving right along. That's free, no extra charge. This woman had a fear of continued rejection and continued failure, but as she kept hearing, her courage overcame her objections. And then hearing brought on a time of self-awakening, not self-awakening, a time of reawakening of hope. Capernaum. <clears throat> Capernaum wasn't that big of a city. It was, it's a, it, you go there today, it's a very compact, it's a, it's a walled city, still pretty small. This woman would have met some of those folks who had been touched by Jesus. This woman would have been able to sit and talk to these people. I mean, can you imagine? She's walking down the street and there's this guy going, What's the matter with you? Oh, I used to be blind and now I see. I'm just excited about Jesus. Touch me. And I, is that blue? Is that what blue looks like? People have been telling me about blue. Is that blue? That would be an exciting moment for that woman. Here's another guy walking along. He's doing this. What are you doing? Man, I went like this. I was 22 years like this. And then Jesus just walked up and, look at what I can do. Or how about this one? What's your name? John. What's your life? What's your background? Well, I'm an ex-leper. You're what? I'm an ex-leper. Jesus touched me. My leprosy went away. Went down and got, I'm cool. She got to meet those people. I tell you what, that builds some faith, don't you think? It might at least encourage you to make a step toward Christ. And she was in a city full of those kind of people. And as she heard more and more, hope overwhelmed her despair so that when she heard that Jesus was now in town, she was ready. And remember now, we're talking about that three-stage process of faith where she engaged faith. She heard, but then she had to think. Look at what it says in verse 28. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. See, she made an inward decision. Anytime you choose to do something, you have to first make that inward decision. She thought it through and decided in her mind that she could accept the reality of these witnesses. These are the people that she was talking to. You know, you see somebody who says, Jesus changed my life. And you look at their life, and sure enough, their life has just radically changed from what it used to be. Are you going to accept that witness? That's really a choice you make. She had made a choice. She accepted the reality of the witnesses all around her who could relate and demonstrate and prove the love and the mercy of this Jesus of Nazareth who was getting out of the boat down on, at, the, at the shore. And then she also accepted that, yeah, if he would do this for anybody, he'll do this for me, for her. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people think God won't save me or God won't touch me, or God won't hear my prayer. I'm just too bad for God to love, or I'm too bad to get saved. Listen, there's nobody on this earth that's so bad that they cannot be saved. And by the way, there's nobody on this earth that's so good they don't need to be saved. And this woman realized he will do it. He'll do it. If he'll do it for anybody, he'll do it even for me. And she accepted that it was worth the risk to believe. And at some point, as faith began to overshadow doubt, and, and, and hope began to overwhelm despair. She just decided, no, it's not that he might do it. It's that he will do it. It's just me getting to him. And so then she came up behind him in the crowd. That's, that is, she moved. Her faith moved her. She let her hope spring into faith, and then her faith sprang into action. So we considered the plight that she faced, but don't forget now the pride that she had to flee because being somebody who for 12 years has been kind of, I have to stay away from people, I have to hide, it took some good, plain guts to go out there in that crowd. It took some pure, strong faith to go out there and meet Jesus because she had to lay down her privacy. You know, if you've got a chronic condition, a lot of people don't know about it. You don't just go around saying, yeah, I've got this thing right here. It's just, you know, you don't go around telling people that, especially if it's something that they're going to think is, you got what? What is it catching? You don't do that. 
Well, she wouldn't have done that. She would have had a condition. She did have a condition that she would have wanted to keep private. She would have wanted to keep very personal. And so she would have might have maybe wanted to keep it to herself. She's giving that up to go out there into that crowd. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why we have public baptism and public confession of faith. Because <clears throat> there are people who think that you can be a, a, a secret saint. There are folks in our world that think you can be an undercover believer. That's a, an oxymoron. That's a contradiction in terms. It's one of the things you hear every time people running for office. They say, well, they ask them, are you a Christian? They say, well, my faith is a very personal and very private thing. If they say that, that means no, okay? Because while your faith has to be very personal, you have to personally give your life to Christ. If it's private, it's not real faith. She was willing to give up her privacy. She laid it down, and, 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 and she went right out there into the middle of that crowd. And in so doing, she laid down her safety and security as well. Because coming out of that jostling crowd meant that this woman who was ceremonially unclean was going to touch a lot of other people. That means that she was uh, going in there really literally risking her life because somebody could have taken her up on charges. A person who was ceremonially unclean was supposed to actually give a warning and say, hey, stay back from me, I'm unclean. Please don't, don't get too close because I don't want you to get unclean. Because if they were unclean, they couldn't celebrate the Sabbath, they couldn't go down to the, the synagogue, they couldn't do the temple worship. It wasn't just frowned upon is what I'm trying to say if you were unclean. It could lead to being set before the synagogue and on a trial. It could actually lead to being stoned. But it's probably okay. I mean, she's out there in the middle of that crowd. There's nobody from the synagogue there, right? No, wait a minute. Who was it that's leading this parade? Jairus, a leader of the synagogue. Guess who would have been sitting in judgment had she been brought up on charges? Jairus would have been the dude. Well, the man. The ruler. You get it. So she went out there at great cost or a great uh, uh, lack of safety. She took a chance to get to Jesus. And so uh, she laid down her old life as well. She laid down a life of anonymous suffering. And by the way, I bet she was ready and glad to lay down that life of anonymous suffering. I, I can just imagine she was very happy to give, that, give up that old life of constant loneliness. And when she got the chance of giving up that life of hiding and weeping, it was all about to be over. And we see that in the power she felt. And that's there again in verse number 29. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. She felt in her own body. She knew what the sensations felt like. She knew what was going on and how it felt. And all of a sudden, that was over. For the first time in 12 years, she felt good. I look around, I see people who have suffered and lived with chronic conditions all of the, for, for many years, and I've realized, you know, if you knew, it, if that was gone all of a sudden, you'd stand up and say, this is different. Well, that's the way she was feeling, because she was freed from her suffering, but she wasn't the only one that felt it, and so as, as we get to this point, we kind of have to add in the second major character of this whole story, that she wasn't the only one that felt something, verse number 30, immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, it's interesting here. Jesus felt the power, he felt the release, or he perceived in himself that the, the, the healing power had gone forth. He stopped the whole parade. Now, I'm sure Jairus is over here saying, 
We're going that way. But Jesus, I mean, Jesus could have come back and found the woman later. Jesus could have come back. But Jesus had a reason to stop and let the testimony service begin. In fact, if you look at verse 33 again, it's, he told him the, she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So let's, let's try to walk through this again. Jesus feels the, the, the event, the healing happen. He immediately asks, who touched me? Now, did he ask that for information? Did Jesus really not know who had touched him? Of course he knew. It says he turned around and looked at the woman and waited for her to respond again, didn't he? But he asked who touched me, not for information, but rather for revelation. To help the disciples. Really, if you think about it, really to help Jairus too. Because there was some bad news about to hit Jairus. We'll find out next week. But he turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples are a great deal of help. I can just see Peter. Do what? Who touched me? About 900 people. Look around you. Everybody's jostling and swinging by. Look around at this jostling crowd. Lots of people touched you. Seems a pretty odd question then, doesn't it, to them? But you see, Jesus knew, yeah, a lot of people had touched him. A lot of people had passed by. A lot of people had brushed the Lord. But only one had actually touched him by faith. And it made a difference in her life, and it didn't make a difference in anybody else's. Because she touched him by faith. That's one of the great tragedies of the modern day, I think, is people bump into Jesus everywhere. People in our culture bump into Jesus at Christmas time. They bump into Jesus when they see a little cross necklace. They bump into Jesus when they see Easter celebrations. They bump into Jesus with a Christian t-shirt. Or they bump into Jesus, they see a, a, a bumper sticker. And what do they do? They brush past the gospel, and they're unchanged. They bump into church people, and they're unchanged. They jostle against Jesus, but they never really touch him by faith. So Jesus didn't give up until here came the woman, trembling and fearful, it says there. Maybe even eyeing Jairus, <laughs> you know, because I don't know about him. But she fell at Jesus' feet and told him the whole story. I mean, she, taught, she probably started back 12 years ago. <laughs> you know how it is sometimes when you get into a testimony service and people start to tell a little more than they got to? I don't know what this woman did exactly, but she probably told the whole story. And she began to say, you know, from the first stirrings of hope and the first stirrings of, I think Jesus can touch me and heal me, she began to tell the whole story about the blood, the doctors, the 12 years, the, the hearing and the thinking, and then the miracle. And then verse 34, Jesus says this, And he told her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. I've got to read it again. Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, does that mean that we're talking about some kind of marvelous, mystical force called faith that she used and it happened and boom, and it's her responsibility or that is that it's her doing? No, not at all. When Jesus says, your faith has made you whole, what he's talking about is that entire process that we've talked about this morning. The first stirrings of hearing, the first stirrings of hope, right up to this moment of happy confession, that's all one faith. You understand? That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, there is a principle of faith, and you can have a gift of faith, but this woman here, what Jesus is talking about, it's all one faith because it's all one move of God drawing him to her, her to himself as God was introducing himself all over again as her one and only hope. God was introducing himself to this woman as her one and only salvation. But let me, let me, let me kind of bring it down to a, a landing here and show you this. Don't miss this. Look at how Jesus addresses this woman. It's up there on the screen. He says, not ma'am. He says, not lady. 
He doesn't say woman. He doesn't even say sister. He says daughter. Three times this event is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All three of them have it. And each time Jesus is recorded as calling her daughter. And you know what? He never said that to anybody else in Scripture. Now, he talked about daughters. He said the word daughter. But to actually look at someone, look in her eyes and say, daughter. After 12 years of rejection, what do you suppose it meant to her to hear from the Lord, daughter? After 12 years of being ostracized and pariah-dogged, she was welcomed all of a sudden into the family. No one else in the Gospels. He called her by that covenant title. He called her by that family title, relational title, reserved only for those who are in the family. Now remember a minute before, she was just a, a, a suffering sinner. She was just an unknown person who had a problem. And all of a sudden now, oh now, she's healed. She's restored. She's welcomed. She's included. Daughter. I need to share with you this morning in closing that that is what God wants for each and every one of us. Now, not to be daughter necessarily. Obviously, he wants us guys to be a son. But, but to be a daughter of the new covenant. To be a son of the most high God. That was always God's plan. That he open up heaven. See, God Almighty created a perfect world. And he created it in, in, in a perfect way, and he put into that world his greatest creation, man and woman, people. And for a time, there was sweet fellowship. There was wonderful, there was no suffering. There was no shame. There was no sin. But then the great tragedy fell, and sin, sin entered into the world as men and women chose to disobey God. And suffering and shame came with the sin. But worst of all, it broke that sweet fellowship between God Almighty and His people. Because holy God cannot have a relationship with sinful man. The holiness of God will destroy that sinful man, and yet God still loved the man. But Scripture tells us, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. That means He's holy, and we're not. We're in a mess. We've we got a problem. People were separated from holy God by the great canyon of sin. In fact, Abraham told, uh, in the story Jesus told about Lazarus and Abraham and, and, and the rich man, there's a great gulf fixed. That great gulf of sin between man who is a sinner and God who is holy. And nothing man can do, nothing woman could do, could bring them back over to God's side of the canyon. See, the result, that is the wages of sin... The punishment for sin is death. We know that Scripture tells us that. The wages of sin is death. And death seemed to be victorious. Because sin passed down into all ages through, through, through the, the, the seed of man. Through the, as Scripture tells us, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. But, but God so loved. See, yes, the wages of sin is death. But, the rest of that verse says, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what happened was Jesus came from the holy side, from the God side of the canyon. He came over, born of a virgin, so that he didn't have the sin nature. He came over and lived a sinless, perfect life so that he was not guilty of any sin. And after that perfect life, then he went to a cruel Roman cross. And on that old rugged cross, he died my death 
On that old rugged cross, he died your death. He took all of the sin of the world upon him, and he died because of the wages of sin. He died in our place. The scripture says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf in order that we might be made the righteousness of God. The only way we could have that that, that relationship back with him was to be righteous as God is righteous. And so on the third day, God raised Jesus up from the dead to prove that he accepted that substitutionary sacrifice, to prove that his justice had been satisfied. And now we know the truth is that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And you know what happens at that moment? You come back across that canyon from death to life. As Jesus said it this way in John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he shall not be condemned, but he has passed over, crossed over from death back to life. And see, Jesus, by reaching out to us, allowed us to reach out to him by by him coming to, to to our town coming to our place coming to where we live because we couldn't get to him just like that little woman she reached out but only because jesus first came to her she was calling out to the lord and scripture tells us in romans 10 13 whosoever called upon the name of the lord shall be saved so i'll ask you in closing are you That is, have you called upon the name of the Lord? Are you saved? I'm here to tell you, for the United States, for the world, for us, for me as an individual, He is our only hope. Come to Jesus. Listen, let faith overshadow doubt. Come to Jesus. Let hope overcome despair. Come to Jesus. Let courage overwhelm your objections. And come to Jesus. Let's pray.